The House and Senate are still both in recess and still will come back in mid-November. Now to a windfall profits tax. Reaffirming his true status as an ignorant progressive, but I repeat myself, Joe Biden last Monday accused oil companies of what he called war profiteering and said his administration would, quote, work with Congress to look at these options that are available to us. It's time for these companies to stop war profiteering, meet their responsibilities in this country, and give the American people a break and still do very well, end quote. Given that he's about to lose control of the Congress, I don't know for certain which Congress he was referring to, but neither the current Congress nor the next one is likely to give him a windfall profits tax. And that's a good thing, because a windfall profits tax would lead to less oil production, not more. Apparently, Biden still hasn't figured out one of the iron laws of taxation. If you want less of something, tax it. So his proposed windfall profits tax, which would be a tax placed on top of the current 21% corporate tax rate, would lead to less oil production, not more. And that would lead to more inflation, not less. Jimmy Carter pushed through a windfall profits tax after the OPEC oil embargo of the 1970s. That tax was in place from 1980 to 1988. It was projected to raise $393 billion, but ultimately only brought in about $80 billion, about a fifth of what was projected. The Congressional Research Service estimated that Carter's windfall profits tax reduced U.S. oil production by between 1.2 and 8%. Not to leave that alone, Biden then attacked coal on Friday, speaking at an event in Carlsbad, California, one of the last places in America, apparently, where Joe Biden can go without doing too much damage to Democrats on the ballot. Biden told a story about an old coal-fired power plant in Massachusetts and said, quote, we're going to be shutting down these plants all across America and having wind and solar power, end quote. To put that in context, coal-fired power plants currently produce a little more than one-fifth of all the electricity generated in the United States. Coal is a fairly large source of power for us, and it will be for the foreseeable future. It didn't take West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin more than 24 hours to respond. On Saturday, Manchin said Biden's comments were, quote, not only outrageous and divorced from reality, they ignore the severe economic pain the American people are feeling because of rising energy costs. He continued, quote, comments like these are the reason the American people are losing trust in President Biden and instead believes he does not understand the need to have an all-in energy policy that would keep our nation totally energy independent and secure. It seems his positions change depending on the audience and the politics of the day. Politicizing our nation's energy policies would only bring higher prices and more pain for the American people, end quote. He continued, quote, being cavalier about the loss of coal jobs for men and women in West Virginia and across the country who literally put their lives on the line to help build and power this country is offensive and disgusting. The president owes these incredible workers an immediate and public apology, and it is time he learn a lesson that his words matter and have consequences, Manchin concluded. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre responded to Manchin, saying Biden's words had been, quote, twisted. Now to the lame duck agenda. The House and Senate will return soon to kick off the lame duck session. The House will come back into session on Monday, November 14th. 
The House will stay in session through Friday afternoon of that week. The House will then take a week-long Thanksgiving break and will return on Tuesday, November 29. The House will then stay in session through Friday, December 2, and will turn around quickly, coming back into session on Monday, December 5, staying through Thursday, December 8. The schedule calls for the House to return on Monday, December 12, and stay in session through Thursday, December 15. That's the target adjournment date, but we're still more than a month out, and there's a ton of work to be done, so don't count on that just yet. The Senate is actually scheduled to be in session Wednesday and Thursday of this week, November 9 and 10. Then the Senate will come back on Monday, November 14, and stay in session through Friday, November 18. Then the Senate will follow the House and take a week-long Thanksgiving break, returning on Monday, November 29, staying in session through Friday, December 2nd. Then the Senate will return on Monday, December 5, and stay in session all week, then return on Monday, December 12, and stay in session all week, and then return Monday, December 19, and stay in session through Wednesday, December 21. Again, we're more than a month out, so don't write anything in ink. As to the agenda for the lame duck session, it's going to be quite full. Democrats are going to lose at least one House, and maybe both. So they'll be looking to take advantage of their last several weeks with control over both Houses, to push through as much of their agenda as they can. Let's break these agenda items down simply in terms of priority for passage by the end of the 117th, that is the current Congress. There are really only two bills that must pass before the end of the current Congress, the government funding bill and the National Defense Authorization Act. The current continuing resolution funds the government through December 16. Democrats will want to pass an omnibus appropriations bill to cover government funding for the rest of the fiscal year, all the way through the end of September. Conservatives, mostly in the House, will want to block that and hold off on writing a full-year spending bill until they take control in the 118th Congress, which begins in January. But they don't have any power to block that in the House because they're in the House minority until the next Congress is inaugurated in early January. So they're going to have to rely on Senate conservatives if that's going to happen, and that's unlikely. It's unlikely because Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who may become majority leader in the 118th Congress, will want to pass a full-year spending bill in the lame duck session so he can start the next Congress with what he will call a clean slate. So the fight over an omnibus in the lame duck isn't going to be a fight between the House and Senate or between Democrats and Republicans. First, it's going to be a fight inside the Senate Republican conference between conservatives who want to pass a short-term CR just to get into the new Congress and establishment Republicans who just want to pass a full-year omnibus and be done with it. And let me be clear about something. We're going to be talking a lot about a full-year omnibus in the coming weeks, and I want to be clear, I recognize it's not actually a full-year omnibus because the fiscal year began on October 1, and we're already several weeks into that new fiscal year. So when I say full-year omnibus, what I mean is an omnibus appropriations bill that funds the government from whatever time it begins until the end of the current fiscal year on September 30, 2023. The second bill that's a must-pass is the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. The Senate was scheduled to begin debate on this bill during the scrapped October session, but that session got scrapped. So this bill is waiting for action. It's passed every year for more than 60 years, and this will not be the first year it does not pass. So expect significant action in the Senate when it returns. 
After these two must-pass bills, we've got several bills that will probably go through the lame duck. There will be an emergency supplemental spending bill to send billions of dollars in hurricane relief to Florida for the damage done by Hurricane Ian. That funding could get tacked on to the omnibus, but Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott wants a separate standalone vote on that, and we'll see if he gets it. Democrat leaders in both chambers want to pass a bill reforming the Electoral Count Act. The House already passed its version of ECA reform, but the Senate has not yet. Senate Republicans have made clear to anybody who will listen that they're only interested in the Senate's version of a reform bill, so don't even bother wasting time trying to learn about the House version. Then there's the same-sex marriage bill. Again, the House has already passed its version, but the Senate Republicans who would provide the necessary 10 votes to get on the bill aren't interested in anything they haven't been a party to, so don't even worry about that House bill. We'll very likely have a tax extenders bill. Democrats want to bring back the child tax credit enhancement, and Republicans want to revive a tax benefit for business research expenses. There may be other tax provisions included in such a bill, and there may be another attempt to pass more funding for COVID, a water resources bill, flood insurance renewal, and more military aid for Ukraine. The kicker, it's possible that congressional leaders in both parties could decide to try to pass a hike in the debt ceiling while Democrats still control both chambers. Now, we're not exactly sure when the next debt limit will be reached because the spending is fluctuating, but we don't think that debt limit will be reached until late next year. Nevertheless, Democrats may decide to try to pass a debt limit hike while they're still in control of both chambers of the Congress. One more thing, if Democrats lose the Senate, there will be additional pressure on Majority Leader Schumer to confirm as many Biden nominees as possible before he gives up control of the floor and the Senate majority in early January. Now to our last campaign update brought to you by Tea Party Patriots Citizens Fund, our last campaign update before the election tomorrow. The Wall Street Journal made huge news in the middle of the week last week when it released its most recent poll, which showed that white suburban women who make up about 20% of the national electorate shifted from favoring Democrats by 12 points in the journal's last August poll to favoring Republicans by 15 points in its most recent poll. That 27-point move suggested to most of the mainstream media talking heads that abortion has faded in importance and has been replaced by inflation and the economy as top issues for this crucial voter segment. Now, because this is going to be our last campaign update before the election, let's review. The Senate is deadlocked at 50-50. There are 35 seats up in this cycle. Democrats are defending 14, while Republicans are defending 21. Of the 21 seats Republicans are defending, six of them are open seats with no incumbent. That's Alabama, Missouri, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, and Pennsylvania. Alabama, Missouri, and Oklahoma are done and will remain Republican. And North Carolina and Ohio both look very good for the GOP for now. That leaves the open seat in Pennsylvania and Ron Johnson, a threatened incumbent, running for his third term in Wisconsin. The race for the open Senate seat in Pennsylvania continues to move toward the Republican Party. Two weeks ago, the RCP polling average showed Democrat John Fetterman with a lead of 2.4 points. Now the RCP polling average in Pennsylvania shows Republican Mehmet Oz with a lead 
of 0.1 points. Despite the fact that all the movement in this race for the last month has been in one direction toward Dr. Oz, and despite the fact that a week ago, Fetterman had a disastrous debate performance, University of Virginia professor Larry Sabato's crystal ball calls this race lean Democrat as of yesterday. I'm told they're going to have one final update today, but it hasn't been listed at the time that I'm recording this. The Cook Political Report and Inside Elections call this race a toss-up. Real Clear Politics calls it a toss-up, but also projects a GOP hold. In Wisconsin, incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson's RCP polling average advantage three weeks ago was 2.8%. Two weeks ago, it remained unchanged at 2.8%. Last week, it moved up to 3.3%, but this week, it ticked down slightly to 3.2%. Sabato's crystal ball, Inside Elections, and Cook all say this one leans Republican or tilts Republican. RCP projects a GOP hold. There is one other Republican-held seat that deserves mention, Utah. In Utah, incumbent Republican Mike Lee is running for his third term in office. The Democrats there knew they had no chance to defeat Lee because Utah is as red as red can be. So instead of nominating a sacrificial lamb, they chose not to nominate a candidate and instead fall in line behind an independent candidate named Evan McMullen, who some of you may remember, ran for president in 2016 as an independent in a scheme to siphon off enough Republican votes to deny President Trump the White House. It didn't work then, and it looks like his second bid for high public office is going down in flames, too. The last two polls in Utah, both of which fielded last week, show a Lee blowout. One poll has Mike Lee up by 19 The other has Lee up by 10. Both polls have Lee at or over the magic 50% mark. So of all the Republican-held seats, the only one that I think is a true toss-up is Pennsylvania. And while I have to list it as a toss-up, I'm betting that Mehmet Oz pulls it out because all the momentum is going his way. Now let's look at the Democrat-held seats. At the start of the cycle, everybody was focusing on four seats, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and New Hampshire. New Hampshire kind of dropped off the radar when the incumbent Republican governor, Chris Sununu, disappointed Washington Republicans when he chose to take a pass on running for the Senate and instead chose to run for re-election to another term as governor. We'll come back to New Hampshire in a moment. So that left three seats, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. The Arizona contest for the U.S. Senate continues to tighten. Three weeks ago, the RCP polling average advantage for incumbent Democrat Senator Mark Kelly was 4.5%. Two weeks ago, it was 2.5%. Last week, it was down to 1.5%. And this week, it's down to 1%. See that pattern developing? Early last week, the Libertarian candidate dropped out of the race and endorsed Republican Blake Masters. Now, that could be a big deal. In the 2020 presidential election, there was a Libertarian on the ballot in Arizona who drew 50,000 votes in a year when Biden's margin of victory was a little over 10,000 votes. So you could argue that while the Libertarian can- that the Libertarian candidate drew enough votes to throw the state to Biden. That might still happen this time. Because while the Libertarian candidate officially dropped out of the race and publicly endorsed Masters, his name will still be on the ballot. And nobody knows, to my knowledge, nobody to my knowledge is advertising the fact that he dropped out and endorsed Masters. So we have no idea how many of the Libertarian's supporters will actually know he's dropped out and endorsed the Republican. Sabato's crystal ball and inside elections both rate this one as lean Democrat or tilt Democrat. 
Cook still has the race listed as a toss-up. RCP projects a Republican pickup. The Georgia contest for the U.S. Senate continues to tighten, too. Three weeks ago, the RCP polling average advantage for incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock was 3.3%. Two weeks ago, that dropped to 2.4%. Last week, Walker led in the RCP polling average by 1.6%. This week, Walker's lead has shrunk to 0.4%. Sabato's crystal ball inside elections and Cook all call this race a toss-up, and RCP projects this race will go to a runoff on December 6th. The Nevada contest for the U.S. Senate continues to look good for the Republicans. Last week, Republican nominee Adam Laxalt's advantage in the RCP polling average was 1.2%. This week, it's up to 1.9%. Again, Sabato's crystal ball inside elections and Cook all list this as a toss-up, but RCP projects a GOP pickup. Now let's get back to New Hampshire, which a month ago had been left for dead by the Washington Republican establishment. A funny thing happened on the way to Democrat incumbent Maggie Hassan's re-election. She ran into a bad political environment and an opposing candidate who seems to be running an awfully good campaign against her. Retired Air Force General Don Baldock, who ran for the GOP Senate nomination in 2020 but lost and decided to come back again, has closed the gap on Hassan. The RCP polling average has Hassan leading by 0.8%. Sabato's crystal ball, inside elections, and Cook all rate this one as lean Democrat or tilt Democrat, respectively. This one is coming right down to the wire. And now I'm going to introduce another race into the mix. Washington State, where incumbent Democrat Patty Murray, who was first elected to the Senate in the 1992 Year of the Woman campaign, is running scared because of a fast-closing challenge from Republican Tiffany Smiley. Washington, D.C. Republicans have been high on Smiley all year, but she didn't really show any movement in the polls until recently, and I mean very recently. A week ago, on Friday, October 28, according to RCP, she was down 50 to 41.5%. Since then, she's closed that 8.5-point gap to a 3-point gap trailing Murray 49.3 to 46.3%. So she goes into the final weekend having cut five points off her opponent's lead in one week. She's still down three, and she had four days to go. If this turns out to be a true red wave year, this is the kind of race that can get over the top. So it looks to me as the Republicans will hold all of their seats or lose maybe one. If they lose one, they need to pick up two Democrat seats out of Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, New Hampshire, and maybe even Washington state to regain control of the Senate and put themselves in position to block some of Biden's nominees. Regarding the contest to control the House of Representatives, the Republicans need to pick up five seats to recapture control of the House. Given the toxic political environment for Democrats and Biden's low job approval numbers, There really has not been any doubt about whether the Republicans would recapture control of the House. The only question was by how much. With the election just a day away, I'm going to predict a medium-sized wave at minimum and possibly more. Since last week, there's been further movement toward the Republicans. Last week, Larry Sabato's crystal ball issued a new rating for the entire House, and for the first time in the cycle, they showed Republicans favored to win at least 218 seats, the exact number needed to take control of the House. This week, they've added one more seat to the list of seats favored to go Republican, so Crystal Ball is now showing 219 seats favored to go Republican. Then they've got four seats listed as safe R flips, 
and they list 20 toss-up races, of which only three are held by Republicans, 17 by Democrats. The Cook political report also sees movement toward the Republican Party. Cook now rates 212 House seats as at least leaning to the Republicans, one up from last week, while only 188 seats lean to the Democrats. That's down three from last week. Cook has 35 races listed as toss-ups, and Cook has kept its House outlook at a GOP net gain of between 12 and 25 seats. That's our Washington report and our TTPCF campaign update for this week. Back to you, Jenny Beth.